Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. My name is Alex Clements and if you haven't already, make sure you check out MAP's full range at map.cc for all your cycling apparel needs. Today on the podcast, we've got Nick Schultz, a current professional rider for Mitchell and Scott and we go through his full story from starting off cycling at a very young age to progressing through the junior ranks, not making the AAS team, taking the alternate route at the time to go straight to France. He then spent three roller coaster years in France, uh, taking in everything that the sport offers before graduating to Caja Haral, a Spanish pro continental team. He then eventually completed the dream, ending up at Mitchell Scott, where he is today. But Schultze has some amazing tales along the way, and I think this could be one of our best podcasts we've ever done. If you do enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, share it on social media, or leave us a review on iTunes, and we hope you enjoy Nick's story. Welcome, Nicholas Schultz to the Stanley Street Social Podcast. Thanks for having us in your Girona apartment. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, quite a formal introduction there. The yeah. last time I was called Nicholas was uh, when I was in trouble with my missus, I think. So uh, <laughs> hope that doesn't set the tone. Um, so today, I want to run over your how you started off, but then really go into that that your French days and your Spanish days, and then now you're back at your Australian days at Mitchell Scott. First memories of riding? Um, what type of bike? Oh, just Any. in general. How you? Maybe let's start with the road. When did you start going? Um, well, I I first got into competitive cycling probably actually on the track. Um, so when my dad was a teenager, he did a bit of riding, um, and he knew a guy from those days that built frames um, who was still involved in in cycling. Uh, so he contacted him and he suggested to go out to the velodrome in Brisbane um, to sort of see what it was about there. And uh, and I swung my leg over a, a track bike for the first time. Like the first bike with racing bars was uh, was a trackie. Um, and that sort of... Uh, it took a while, I think, until I got onto a road bike at that point. Um, how, how old was this? So I was... Just before I turned seven was when I started on the track. <laughs> it's... Proper early. Proper early. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was I was whipped on cycling. Um, I I just saw it on telly actually. Dad just used to have the highlights on uh, of the Tour de France, the six pm highlights back when that was all we used to have. And I just sort of vividly remember Lance just riding away, and I was just glued to the telly. Had no idea what it was, what he was doing, but I think just uh, everything about it at the time, the location of where they were. Um, just the look of determination on his face and yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to do it. I wanted to be a part of it. Was your dad racing and was he riding? Or was he Not at all. Recreational? No. Um, when he, when he was riding, he raced a little bit. Um, but I mean, to the extent of which he could, I think there wasn't much racing around then. Um, just the odd, the odd handicap or sort of road race by the sounds of it with very few numbers, um, I think he was he was pretty into it, um, but he hasn't really delved into that much. Mm. Um, yeah, other than I can sort of see his love for the sport now, um, and it kind of got him back into it as well. Yeah, and you're a big talent off the off off the bat. 
winning races, cleaning yeah. up cleaning up the juniors. Well, I mean that's that's hard to say, isn't it? When you're seven years old, there's no competition. <laughs> I was I was like one of three competitors. Um, for sure, I went out and just went full gas from the gun and generally finished solo. Um, but I wouldn't say that was a gauge of uh, what was to come, as uh, there there just really wasn't. When and then you started racing road. Mm-hmm. When was that? Soon after, I'd say within. I don't really remember correctly, so that's something I'd probably have to ask my parents. But probably yeah. within six months to a year, yeah. got a road bike, um, and and then that sort of uh, just triggered everything. I was just nonstop because I could ride the thing every day. Um, my poor dad had to get his old bike out and also start riding because I was so small I wasn't allowed to go for a training ride by myself so he'd just sort of come along and sit yeah. behind me and let me do my thing. Were you playing other sports? Yeah, I was into okay. like like every kid like I was playing soccer. Um my brothers were really big into basketball. I dabbled a little bit in that but couldn't handle the defeat um, from two older brothers. Yeah. I mean, we'd just play in the street and I'd get blocked and just they'd be pretty harsh on me um, being so small. So I had to get away from what they were doing and, and that may be another reason that I was so hooked on cycling. Um, but for a long time, I still played other sports all through school, um, maintained interest in all of those. When did it become your sport? Like, that was it. Remove the basketball, remove the other sports. I'm a cyclist. Oh, I think from day one, it's just that I still enjoyed doing other things with yeah. other people. I was the only seven-year-old of of my school or group of friends that that did cycling. So it was it was very much like it was very much my sport because no one in my family really did it. Um, none of my friends did it. Uh, so to actually maintain any sort of social aspect of sport, I kind of had to continue everything. And I still enjoyed playing soccer and basketball. Um, but it was evident very quickly that my heart and passion weren't in those sports. It was purely for fun, but I was driven to ride a bike. Mm. Did you, and then like, when did you stop doing those sports though? When, when was cycling? Um, I think maybe, maybe year nine or 10, I really started to think that. Which is like under 17s, uh, under 19s? Yeah. Let's say. Early under seventeens, I think I, I started to get some, some maybe coaching guidance for the first time around that around that age. I can't quite remember the exact age I was when I um, got a bit of guidance with with coaching from a guy called Mer McDonald, um, and and from that point on, I think I saw that like if I really wanted to pursue it, uh, the other things would have to take a little bit of a. Um, sort of go on the back burner a little bit because I'd I'd go running around at school, do the school cross country or the beep test or something and I'd be absolutely written off and then my legs would hurt when I'd ride mm-hmm. and I was like, ah, I kind of want to stop this, you know, because I, I want to feel good when I'm riding. Um, but, yeah, so I'd, I'd say around 15, 14, 15, maybe 16, I, I it just became progressively uh, more and more about the bike. Um but that's probably something I wouldn't advise to everyone. I think I was just so keen to be a cyclist and to to sort of follow that dream that it was it didn't really matter what anyone would tell me. I was I just wanted to ride my bike and not do anything else. Um, but I would advise to sort of keep a broad uh, 
keep your avenues open and, and do everything for as long as you can because you can do a lot of catching up when you get older. Mm. And we at this point we I'm gonna be a pro cyclist. Like this is this is what I'm meant to be. Oh, drove everyone mad. <laughs> like uh I mean, I didn't even know what it meant to be a pro cyclist because it, it wasn't very common. Um, but I was like, some people used to call me the walking cycling encyclopedia. Um, I knew everything about cycling at the time, even things I wasn't interested in. I was, I knew who was coming like 15th in some cyclocross world cup, which didn't even exist in Oz at the time. I just was on cycling news every chance I could on dial up internet. Um, just, yeah, I, I lived for it. And yeah, drove drove everyone, my family, friends, anyone I could possibly chew the ear off of, I did and was telling them that I was going to be a pro cyclist. Did you go to Junior Worlds? I did twice, twice. both years, yeah. So you were, you're in that mixer of the top five to ten or what is it, they take five or six to Junior Worlds? Well, uh, I don't first, even know if they First take, year I think we were... I don't even know if they take we any a anymore. Few. But yeah, we were six maybe in the first year, maybe even seven, I think... Um, they, they took an extra guy and someone was going to miss out on the Worlds. But because we did a big block of racing before the World titles over in Europe, um, we needed extra people. Um, and the second year was was already starting to be the perhaps the beginning of... of uh, not the end, but the beginning of mm. lack of support for the younger guys going to, and girls going to, to the Junior Worlds. Who was on that squad? Uh, in the first year, uh, the squad Caleb was, and Brad Linfield and Caleb wasn't there because he had track focus. Okay, he would have been there otherwise. Um, yeah, Brad Linfield, Jackson Law, Tom Hamilton, Alex Morgan. Yeah, um, it's a big ride. Edmo, Alex Edmondson was there. Uh, when he was Calvin there. Watson and Calvin Watson. There you go. And Dave Edwards. Dave so Edwards, one of my best squad. mates. Yeah, it was, it was a it was a big squad. Yeah, and the second year was myself, Bradley, Caleb, and uh, maybe Tom was in the second year, actually. Jeez, um, it's bad that I can't actually remember the have you listened team. To, have you heard Tom's segment on the podcast? I haven't. I'd he love started, to listen He to started it. doing a segment for us. It's called Continental Breakfast, and he um, looks up random pro-continental teams. Well, not random. Pro-Continental teams. For example, for the Giro, we went through the the four Pro-Conti teams and just just gives a brief history on what they do in a Tom manner. Like, he can't pronounce the names properly. Oh, it'd be brilliant, it's, I'm it's sure. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go back and have a listen. So, under-19s ends um, in, in the under-23s. What, what were you thinking at that point? Where were you heading? What was the pathway? Um, as any... Any junior in Oz, the goal was to make the Jayco AIS, AIS or, or whatever it was called at the time. Um, and, and it's kind of seen by myself included as, as almost the only pathway that you can take if you're going to go across to Europe. And for me, I wanted to go to Europe. I didn't want to be in Oz doing the NRS. It wasn't taking anything away from the NRS. I just I wanted to be in Europe because I thought that was the lifestyle that I wanted, mm. um, right or wrong. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. I missed out on selection to the uh, to the AIS squad. I came through with some good riders, as we just mentioned before. Um, and I think, 
you know, rightly so, I didn't make the squad. Uh, so I started to look for alternatives to get to Europe. Um, and a, a big help in that was um, my coach at the time who was uh, running the QAS program in Melbourne. And he just sort of put out lines wherever he could, um, like heaps of lines. I, I don't know how many, but to, to basically to everyone in Europe, every amateur team in Europe, I would, I would go as far to say that he could get it contact in contact with he he contacted um, for myself and Dave Edwards. So he's the reason you got us got a gig in the end. One hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure there are other people that he contacted within Oz or in Europe. Some contacts he had, but he was the guy that he's the connect. Yeah, he's the connect, and he did all the digging. Um, yeah. So yeah, he he played a pivotal role in getting me to Europe, if not the only role. Um, Can you remember getting the news? And, and what did he tell you? Um, yeah, he put me in contact with a guy who is uh, like a rider agent in France, um, a Finnish guy who works for a, a French management company. Um, so he'd been connected with him somehow. And and the news was basically that I had a gig with a team, the the team I went and rode for, CR4C Roan, um, and that Dave Edwards had a gig with the Chambéry um, cyclism formation, the basically the reserve team of AG2R. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I want to hear. You know, my best mate and I were going to Europe. We're, oh, you know, two and a half hours away on, on Google Maps. This is, this is the dream. Um, but it was pretty shaky at first because I remember just trying to get in contact with this guy in France and like it was just hopeless um we sort of agreed to have a chat about you know getting this gig um and he sort of just this is the agent this is the agent guy and and basically any appointment we had to talk i mean i just could never get in contact with him and and eventually i did and he confirmed it um and all through this time i'd never had any contact with the team what time of year what time of year are we talking uh pretty reasonably early i think Uh, well early in in the transfer of a under 19 to an under 23, I, I think October, yeah. November, more or less as soon as I got the gist of uh, the fact that I wouldn't be going to the AIS, I was uh, proactive in, in looking for alternatives. And he got in contact with him eventually? Eventually. And he what, then... What did he tell you? He told me that I was going to go and ride for this team. I'd live in a team apartment, uh, which they would pay for. Um, and that they would give me an allowance of 300 bucks a month for the time I was there. So nine months or something uh, to pay for food and Wi-Fi and whatever. So I was like, sweet, I'm going to be a paid bike rider. You know, 300 bucks a month. This is awesome. Um, Were you a bit flat that Dave got on the AG2R feeder squad? Uh, no, no, because... Were you just that stoked you were going to Europe? I was stoked I was going to Europe and... um. For a while, I think kind of both of us didn't really know that it was the AG2R feeder squad because it's not actually called <laughs> yeah. the de- it's not called AG2R development team. So, you know, for a little while there, I, it may have only been very brief. But Dave was going to Chambéry and I was going to Roanne, and that was that was sort of uh, what we thought. And it wasn't until we sort of looked at photos of these teams and stuff, and it's like, ah, oh, that team is like AG2R team. Like that's sweet. Um, but no, not at all. Like Dave was an unreal bike rider. Big bike rider then. Yeah. 
and uh, also one of my best mates. So I was just stoked that someone else was going to be in the same situation, more or less. Um, and I was going to get 300 bucks and he wasn't. So <laughs> I, in my eyes, I was getting the better end of the stick. And so you've then do you meet the team? Like, because this is just the agent, this is not the actual team. Um, I had a, a message on Facebook from one of the directors of the team. Um, very brief contact, basically just giving me some dates that I'd have to be there for the team training camp, which was in like, I don't know, the 15th or 20th of January. But I didn't care because I was keen. Like I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was like, yeah, I'm going to Europe in January, not knowing where what the weather was going to be like, where I was going. Um, so that was, excuse me, that was more or less the only contact I'd had with with the team until I arrived in Leon. And so they just told you where to go. Like they just book your ticket here. You were paying for your flights. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, with the help of my parents, I I got the flights. Um, I also did a lot of work in a bike shop in uh, in Brizzy over that time. I was doing some pretty big hours, to be fair, um, to sort of fund my future trip. And I had this idea that I was going to work as much as I could, save as much money as I could so that I could sort of get my get myself running over there with, with maybe a car or, um, you know, basically anything that could, could potentially improve my lifestyle over there was was paramount in my thinking before going. Um, That's unreal. Yeah, and so you, lucky lucky I did think like that um, because it turned out that that was going to be very necessary. Because you were going over there going, this is my new life. You hadn't even seen it yet. Mm, yeah, I wish I had seen it. <laughs> we wouldn't be sitting here today if I had seen it, I can tell you that. So you get on the plane, land in Leon, well... So I flew over with Dave, actually. Okay. He was in the same situation. He needed to be there for a training camp. Um, so it was, it was really nice flying over together, um, you know, doing the stopover wherever we did, um, being on the same flight to Leon, which was, which was big city in between both of us. Um, turned out to be a very common meeting ground for us um, throughout that period. And uh, we got off the plane and got our bags and sort of walked outside and of course not knowing what the world would be like over here the two ds's of the team were just standing together both chatting away with each other one was dave's ds and one was mine and we only sort of knew what they looked like from i don't know a facebook display picture or something (laughs) like that and we just uh said our goodbyes and and that was that um Neither of us could speak a word of French. We'd both done a, a little course in Brizzy where I think the extent of our French was like, hello, I'd like a coffee in over a three-week period. That's all we learnt. Um, and, and yeah, we just we got in the team cars and, and took off. And that I just remember realising um, sort of the... Uh, it just sort of all hit me on that hour and a half trip back to Roanne, what I'd got myself into. Um, this was a very silent trip. The DS couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak French. Um, a, a pretty special moment as well. It was the first time I'd seen snow in my life. I was like, 
I sort of hinted to the DS that I'd never seen snow as we were driving over a hill and he stopped and I got out and touched it and made a snowball. It was dark, but it was it was a sweet experience for me. And then, uh, yeah, we arrived at the team apartment. And what was that like? Uh, it certainly wasn't well, ours. How, 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 how were you feeling when you saw that team apartment? Um, oh, uneasy. But it was all right. And there was a, a, a teammate in the apartment, a guy who um, who lived in, who, who was from Alsace, beautiful part of France that you'd know quite well, I think. Yeah. We've both raced there together. Um, Had some good times, pretty grim times there. Yeah. I think most cyclists in the peloton today probably have in that race. Um, but uh, he was there and he actually spoke brilliant English. His name was Toma. And he was also very instrumental in sort of helping me through a pretty tough year um, because I kind of lucked out in that he was more or less the only guy who could speak really good English on the team and I got to live with him. Um, and yeah, just did the tour of the apartment and it was it was set up for a team, you know. There were, there were two permanent residents in the apartment, myself and Toma, and then there was another bedroom that had like five beds in it and there was a fold-out couch and yeah, it was... It was busy, um, it turned out. And it was snowing and it was freezing cold. It wasn't snowing, but it was freezing. I'd never felt cold like that. Um, I mean, the closest thing I'd probably come to being actually cold in my life was maybe like the Canberra tour or Mercy Valley. But being from Queensland, I'd never really experienced uh, winter, it mm. turned out. I thought I had when I was in shorts and a... When you had to put jacket. your arm warmers on. Mm, yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't own leg warmers. Um, and that, that was actually pretty cool. I had like a bit of a kit bag in my bedroom and there were those nicks that have the leg warmers built in and that was just mind-blowing. I was like, oh, these are sweet. I've never seen these before. Can't wait to wear it. And like these thick jackets. And turns out, yeah, I had to wear them a lot and I didn't like wearing them. But it was, it was all part of the experience. And... What do you do then? You've rocked up. Well, I didn't really know what was happening. So then the next day, the other DS of the team came around and he sort of just rocked up. I'd understood that someone was going to come around at like 10 o'clock or something to, to pick me up and do some stuff. And uh, he picked me up. He spoke a little bit of English as well, this guy. Jean-Charles, his name was. Um, and we went to a bank at first. And I was like, oh, sweet. Like, I'm already getting a bank account, like day one. <laughs> Um, the team's main sponsor was a, a big bank in France. Um, and yeah, got set up with a bank account and, and he was already saying, uh, yeah, we've got to do this because you're going to get your 300 bucks a month into this account. And I was like, wow, this is a good sign. Like, you know, you've heard, I've, I've heard stories of, of people not getting paid when a team will tell them they're going to get paid. And, and it was just very organized and, and, uh, quite on the contrary to what I've heard, um, from other people in the past. So I was sort of. Um, yeah, excited, nervous, um, and cold. I just remember being so cold. My hands, my hands were actually bleeding my knuckles and stuff from like cracked skin. And you, they gave you a race program? No, uh, there's no such thing as a race program in a French amateur team. You do every race that you possibly can. <laughs> you don't uh, train. You don't train. It's, it's the beauty of being in, a, in an amateur team in France. You don't have to train. Um, it's just cycling at its finest, really. You race 
once or twice a week, maybe three times. Maybe there's a stage race and some one day is, and then you just get to go out on your bike and, and enjoy it. Um, and I'd assumed stop for coffee, but the French don't do that. Um, although they are improving, uh, in 2019, I have seen that some Frenchies do stop for coffee, but at that time it was very much frowned upon to stop for a mid ride coffee. The culture, how did you go adapting to, and did, do you go over there going, I'm going to have to change. They're definitely going to be different. Like that's just how it's going to be. Um, was that a bit? Not at all. Actually, it was a massive shock. The cycling culture was, was the biggest shock and the most head cracking of the shocks initially. What parts? Um, just the way uh, they were about everything was was flipping my protocol on its head. Um, I was very methodical about everything. I'd, I'd come through the QAS, uh, the Queensland Academy of Sport, which was very um, analytical, numbers-driven. Um, you know, I was already doing VO2 max tests and blood lactate testing during watt bike sessions. Um, you know, it was state-of-the-art. And completely unnecessary, looking back. <laughs> like, I don't do that now. And uh, But it was it was a good process as well. And, and then going to France, there was absolutely none of that. I was the only guy to have a power meter. I took my power meter over. Um, and, uh, and we drove... Soon after I got there, we drove to Tarragona, actually not that far away from here in Girona, for a training camp for like... It was ages. It was like maybe a week or 10 days. And I already thought that was pretty big. Um, but uh, that's also when I realized the language was going to be a really big factor to overcome just because it was a it was a big drive and you're in a confined space where everyone's speaking a language that you have no idea what they're saying. I didn't have any food with me because I thought we'd just stop to eat like at a service station or something. And we did stop to eat but not at a service station and everyone had pre-made like these gourmet looking lunches like they actually had prepared the night before to have like a picnic and I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking like we are wasting some serious time on the road here we were stopped for like an hour and a half everyone's just you know like this the team staff are like cracking open bottles of wine and getting out like proper knives and forks and like getting these cheese things out and cutting cheese with these proper knives and I'm like what is going on? And I had no food. So I just ended up like stealing. Well, not stealing. They had to give me some some bread that they were going to eat with the, the cheese. And I just ate bread and cheese for lunch. Um, but that was, you know, just culturally very different to anything we'd do in Oz. It would just be considered a waste of time. Mm. But it, I, it took probably two and a half years for me to embrace that stop because that stop happened on every trip. <laughs> The you talk about the language, mm. you didn't know any of it. How how did you start? Where did you start? Um, look, that's a question I get asked a lot, and I don't know how to answer it because I didn't do lessons. Um, I had a very big desire to learn the language. Um, and I did learn the language, but I don't know how I did it. Um, other than through the desire, I guess, um, just in eventually embracing that I sounded what I thought sounded like an idiot and 
being prepared to make a lot of mistakes and just getting involved um, and, and taking big risks. They weren't big risks, they're just words. Yeah. But y- y- taking a big risk in being laughed at, I guess. And like, like dinner time conversations. This is, yeah, just any... I mean, I was only around French speakers where I lived. There were no English speakers, a very small town. Everything was in French except for my roommate, but he was very persistent in uh, a common expression in France of we are in France, we speak French. And in retrospect, that was brilliant that he was like that. And that was his ultimate goal to teach me how to speak French. But it was also very saddening actually sometimes when I knew he could speak English and he would speak uh, French. But as I said, he was crucial to my uh, fitting in there. Mm. How'd that first year go? Um, it's it started off quite well. Everything it was it's kind of like a honeymoon phase. Even though you're going through all these these big changes, um, it's a big stress on the mind and the body with the weather. Um, I kind of i I still had a lot of energy to race my bike because that was all very exciting. Rocking up at these races with 200 guys, just these filthy races like. <laughs> Still some of the hardest races I have ever done, guaranteed, at least on the mind, just because there is, there's no such thing as, a, as an early break or control in a French race. You have got the big hitters hitting out 200k to go and it's just carnage. Um, and there was one race I remember, a, a very prestigious race in, in France. It was freezing, like there were snowflakes, hail... And I got piped and I, I was just like, I've got to finish like just to get through this day because this is such a cool day. Even though I was out the ass, solo out the back, eventually was with a little group. I was still so like passionate about the whole experience that I just wanted to finish because I actually thought it was quite a cool experience. Um, and I then won a little criterium or like a just a, just a, a crit Um which, which kept me going like another month or two with motivation. And so let's say until May, June, and then it all hit me um, and it went very bad. And I just wanted to stop cycling altogether. Um, wanted to go home. I couldn't speak to anyone, like anyone local about what I was going through because there was no empathy from anyone. No one would even understand why I felt that way. Um, and this is why I also uh, brought up Dave before as well, because he did know what it was like. And, and we were already very close, but we became even closer through that period because um, we were two pretty depressed bike riders in France that were going through more or less like a, a hellish life experience. It, I know it sounds pretty harsh, but that's what it was. What was, what was the driver of that? The, I'm going to have to backtrack on this later, but the yeah. people. Yeah. It was just an, an incredibly difficult culture to crack, to, to get into. Um, and, and that's also a perception on, on my behalf or, or on other people's behalf. Um, because looking back, they weren't at all. It, it's just that you're so angry with not being able to be competent in life, like, being able to speak to someone or do anything yourself, you you just hate the people 
because you're you think they're all against you when when they're not they're just going about their day-to-day life and I've told a lot of people like what would you do if if someone came into your workplace or, or your normal life and they couldn't speak to you in English you're just not going to give them anything because mm-hmm. it's like mate you're in Australia like speak English you know but you don't think of that at the time and uh so yeah the people um and to some extent the difficulty of the racing was was very uh negative on the morale just because it was so hard so hard it's just getting just getting hammered week in week out the the honeymoon phase that I was talking about had worn off mm. i started quitting a lot of races and it became easy to quit and i'd never been a quitter until then but i was just like pulling over getting in the sag wagon even um any races that had laps and i was out the back i'd just i'd call it and and it was easy to to stop yeah um yeah it was it was difficult racing and you got through till what month oh, i had to stay back. until i mean my return flight was booked for october or something after parry tours under 23 yeah big year too big too big at the time definitely too big I, i'd I'd recommend for a lot of guys to go over and do the experience, but maybe not year one, hit out with 10 months almost. Mm. It was just too much, it, just mentally, not physically. I don't think, you know, the only barrier physically is, is probably the mental side of things. Um, but yeah, far too much. So you returned back to Australia mm. and where were you at then? Still wanted well, to be a bike rider? Funnily enough, yeah, we can't, yeah. I mean... That phase of wanting to stop and and just completely rack it probably went until like August, September, pretty deep into it. I was still like, yeah, no, I'm not coming back. And But in, in this time, I kind of had disregarded being a bike rider and was like, I'm just going to live this experience, um, hang out with as many of my teammates as I can. You know, it was summer, guys were having lots of barbecues, Um and I was starting to see that these guys actually had lives. So I, th- I thought they were just very cycling driven and, and had nothing else going on. Um, and I was actually kind of enjoying it. And, and through this, um, I began to converse a little bit in French. And that was making a big difference. Um, so the team at some point or another, maybe let's say September, asked if I wanted to come back and I weirdly said yes so to fast forward to october when i got back to oz i still wanted to be a bike rider and i was going back to france in january 2014 and you were still g'd for that second year oh g'd maybe not but i was you ready for it i was ready for it and and i had the dream of wanting to be a cyclist Uh, it wasn't an easy thing to say yes to go back i certainly thought it through and i think a big thing was i've i've done this much groveling if it gets better maybe it'll be worth it you know Mm. um so i yeah i I had motivation to go back so i went back to oz and worked all through the aussie summer um back at the bike shop back at the bike shop great um great people i was working for who sort of just let me sort of pick my own hours and uh paid me well to sort of keep the dream alive did you end up getting paid that year i did from That's January good. to October, I got 300 bucks a month. Fantastic. Yep. It was brilliant. So you're going back to the same squad. Was anything else changing? 
other than a few riders, nothing else was changing. No, so uh, that was that was a big part of still, of still it. January to October. Yep, that was also consistent. Yeah. And wow, yeah, that it, it it was what it was. Did you hit the ground running when I went back over? Yeah, yeah I was actually going quite well. Um, I was not going very well in the Aussie summer. I think I adopted a very French approach after the season and put on a lot of weight. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, it was necessary. The, actually, the weight was put on during the first year. I was almost unrecognizable. Um, so, I mean, even uh, it's a lot easier for people who didn't know me then to see the difference. Um, for example, my girlfriend has seen a photo of me in the bike shop where I used to work um, from a criterium in, in Brisbane soon after the offie of my first year in France. And she just straight out said I was fat. <laughs> and I was. I was really big. Schultzy. I was uh, about eight kilos, nine kilos heavier than what I am now. So I was a pretty fair bit bigger, mm. pretty chunky guy. Yeah. I think that's all part of it though. It is. It's, it's very of, important. It's that time of, year, time of your life where you actually have to manage your weight. Mm, you can't I, just eat whatever you want. No, and I... I it's it's important, but uh, I still take a similar approach. I'm still probably not as recognisable as now in November. I get a bit chunky. I enjoy food um, and not doing anything. I'm not the type of guy that has a month off and goes running or mountain biking. I take a month off and do zero exercise. Um, and that's one of the things from that foreign French culture that I have kept with me because I think it is incredibly important um, unless you're trying to go well at Aussie Nationals, which mm. I kind of was then and I was uh, I was creeping um, but hit the ground running that next year when I got to Europe. And did that continue? No. the same, A similar sort of thing happened. Um, I, I was going quite well when I got there. I was, I was really motivated, very excited that I could communicate with guys. It was, it was a different feel. I wasn't as depressed um, but there was, it was still, um, it was still very up and down um, with my emotions there, um, and it's something you kind of overlook during during that time. Um, but it it played a big role in in physical performance. So like it came to that similar time of May June, and and there was just a big decline in in performance because I get, it was probably a form of homesickness. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm kind of done with this again. Mm. Um, and then the story kind of repeats itself for what, one more yeah, year. Yeah, what did you do that time? I was becoming very fluent in French and really good friends with all the guys on the team. Like, uh, I was very lucky on the team I was in. It was kind of like a, a green edge of the French amateur peloton, you know, like a very fun family-type atmosphere, um, like guys doing a lot of stuff off the bike, like barbecues and such. Um, that I, I was kind of settling in. I, I felt at home and Tomer and I had kind of done a few modifications to the to the apartment. Um, his dad came over and we put like a, an actual kitchen bench in that we didn't have. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I just felt good there and um, went back for another year. You went back to the same team? The same team. Same team, third year in a row. Yep. Maybe even longer time as well. 
So it was the same deal in October they, or in September. They said, do you want another ride? And you said yes. Uh, earlier. I, in my second year. Were you better? I was better. Year? Yeah. And I won a stage of a, of a Coupe de France race, a French Cup. And they, they are the biggest races in the French amateur scene. It's like, say there's 10 World Tour races, there's 10 Coupe de France. Mm. And, I mean, our team had bonuses, money bonuses for if you won in the Coupe de France. It was like 100 euro per point of a Coupe de France. So if you win a stage, that was 80 points. That's 800 euro to split amongst the team. But that's like, we're talking a big bonus. That's how much it meant to the team. And then I noticed my status in the team change. Like I was a Coupe de France winner. Um, To anyone outside of France, they wouldn't have had a clue what the race was. It's not UCI. It's it's not anything. But they are the biggest and most sought-after races in the French amateur peloton. And I got up in one. Uh, which meant that the team were pretty um, proactive in wanting to keep me because they thought other teams were going to be after me. Um, and they upped my 300 euro to 600 euro. Ooh. So it was it was a good scenario to be in. High roller. Yeah, I was a big dog. Did you, did you, were you a bit, of a bit of a big name in that town then after you won that? Like, does it go that far? Uh, no, not that far. The team is certainly very well known in the town. It's like, oh, you, you're a rider for that team. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool, you know. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, anyone outside of the sport wouldn't, wouldn't have known. But certainly followers of cycling would have, would have started to sort of be like, oh, this Australian guy on, on the team is going okay. Um, but what got me a sort of following there was more the fact I was becoming this French-Australian guy mm. and the I, I worked out that the French love nothing more than a foreigner who embraces their way. We, yeah, were you a French? Were you a French guy by then? Were you, were you, I was. Were you training close. like them? Were you eating like them? Were you living like them? I wasn't quite eating like them. I would try and then crack and eat like a box of cereal after <laughs> I try to eat like them. Um, I was certainly training like them. I'd kind of worked out that I had to. In the first year, I fought it. I was like trying to train in bad weather and trying to train through the week of all these races and it just wasn't working. I was creeping by the end and I I wasn't sort of aware that that was probably mental rather than physical then. So I just started training like them. So as we were discussing before the potty, um, I'd go out and just cruise, just really not do anything on the bike and just roll along, maybe for five hours, but like it was kind of just being out of the house for five hours. I wasn't pushing very hard um and then on certain days i'd just rip it just go full gas just like we'd race like our efforts where we'd race each other in training as this this older guy on the team his name was jerome and he just put me to the sword like on these days and yeah that's i was becoming quite french in the on the cycling side of things um i wasn't really concerned about power still had it but it was just yeah it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. Were you still trying to get in the JKAS team? Was that still a thing? It was certainly still an idea, but I'd kind of realised that the focus was on the new under-19s, or the new under-23s coming from under-19s, unless you were really, really good. So I was in contact with James Victor to do the odd race. I think I might have even come over to you guys at the end of 2014 to do some some of those uh, Italian one-dayers. Um 
but I was pretty content staying in France, actually, at this point. So you went back for a third year. Third year. And you were ready to go? Like, Oh, yeah, I was, I was, it was like, it was like when I had been in Oz, I was on holiday and in January I was going home to France. Wow. Mm. That's big. That was a big change. Um, in a pretty short period of time, really. Yeah. When you think about it. And all down to the language for sure. That integration off the bike changed everything. Um, and, and I kind of remember my mum being like a little bit shook in a way when I said, uh, I'm going home. She was like, home? What do you mean? Yeah. yeah home to France. So I, I think that was also good for them to see as well, that I was at home where I was over in Europe after the first two years. Same house, same teammates. Uh, new addition. I was that much of a big dog on the team by this point um, that I recruited an Australian to the team, Ryan Kavanagh. Kavanagh, that's right. Yeah, so um, Toma, my roommate for two years, he decided to take a step back from sort of pursuing the dream and was just going to ride for a smaller amateur team and try and be a fireman. Um, so he was moving out and I'm like, oh, that means I'll be solo in the apartment. So I'm like, oh. I was like talking to a few guys in Oz and good mates with Ryan and he was performing really well and and it looked like he was going to be in a similar sort of situation to me of being good but not quite good enough to be in the program and and I thought well I'll try and get him on the team and it was pretty easy I pretty much just said to the director that he's a good rider and would they be open to having him on the team and uh, they were and he had the same deal as I did um, to come over and and be there so that was nice to have an Aussie in the apartment mm. That year itself, did you win any races? I didn't win any races, but I was uh, the most consistent I'd ever been. I performed from the first race of the year until the last race of the year, um, like at the very pointy end of the race, and was becoming um, almost a marked rider in the in the uh, French amateur scene and a leader of the team. Mm. And terms of like the first two years where you dropped off mm. was that was that consistent that year you you enjoyed france for the year yep yeah yep. i was actually and you went back to australia again on holiday yeah yeah and i and but when i was going back to australia i'd signed with uh, the seg racing academy so i wasn't going back to france i was coming to Girona, um and i was a bit shook by that as well i was like i'm not going back home to france and i i had to leave my car in france i just packed all my stuff into some suitcases and put it in the boot of my car planning on like maybe i fly into leon and then drive to Girona. like thinking of all these things like how am i gonna get my car because i want my car mm. um so there, there was also like there was a bit of a few unknown sort of things leaving france that year um and some sort of mixed emotions because I, I thought to progress my career, I had to go onto a team that was going to race outside of France. Um, and and Seg were quite a big... They were, one of the big... Uh, Conti teams. Yeah, and, and uh, I should... Under 23 focus. Correct. And I should back up a little bit and mention that at this point, the Jayco AIS had offered me a spot for 2015. So after two years doing it tough in France... 
I got the nod to be on the Jayco AIS. Um, Why'd you say no? I just didn't want to live with you guys. <laughs> um, no, but in all honesty, that was it. Yeah. Um, I'd. I was. You didn't want to be Australian? Yeah, I wanted to be French, actually. Yeah. I wanted to change my passport and everything. Um, no, no. Uh, it was. No, no, but in terms of like just the, the culture. Yeah, I'd realised that on those little stints with, with you guys in Varese for some one-day races, I had a very different vision mm. to life as a cyclist. You know, I didn't want to train hard. <laughs> well, I mean, I did, but just in a different way, you know. I, I had the French way. Because um, we, we, were, we were running a program that, or we are in a program that was the same as your v, uh, QAS stuff. Correct. Just it's a same, state of it's the art. same thing. More scientific than probably any World Tour team, except mm. maybe Ineos, but I'd don't even think they were as scientific. Um, so it was, it was more like I'd, I'd kind of become my own guy over in Europe and, and I wanted to keep it that way. Um, I was a little bit concerned that maybe going back into the Australian way uh, could kind of throw a few um, bumps in the road um, because I, I, like I was... I was capable of self-reflection at the time and just thought, well, maybe I don't fit into this um, this way of cycling at, at this point in my career. Um, so I didn't want to change it. It was working how I was doing it in France. So I wanted to sort of keep on that pathway of, um, of finding my feet and becoming an independent guy over here in Europe. Um, but also I was very clear with, with uh, James, who was running the program, for Australia at the time uh, that I would like to be considered for opportunity. And I didn't want to, if, if me saying no to the team was going to be a, like a, on bad terms, I would join the team. Um, but they were really good um, in allowing me to sort of continue to pursue um, my own pathway and while giving me opportunity. So you moved to Girona. Had, had, what did you end up doing? Did you fly to Leon again, drive across? No. Uh, so the team... Uh, while I was back in Oz, uh, I thought, oh, the, the French team, they'll be doing their standard year, yearly training camp in Spain at the start of the year. <clears throat> so I contacted the guys there and I was like, look, would anyone be prepared to drive my car and drop it off in Girona, like a car park somewhere, um, so I can get it? I'd never been to Girona before. I didn't know what it was like. Um, but those guys being the great guys that they were, they're like, yep. Uh, so the team... The French amateur team took a detour on the way to their training camp, dropped my car off in Girona. And uh, so it was here waiting for me when I, when I got here um, after a training camp in Greece with Seg. Did you have an apartment? Seg, Seg had sorted out an apartment here in Girona. Um, and I was uh, there living with another Australian, Freddie Ovet. How'd, uh, how did Seg kick off? Um, again, in, t- in terms of that year, was it... Good from the start. Um, Were you moving well? Yeah, a similar sort of thing happened in Oz. I had a good offie. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going that well at nationals. And and I was sort of... I was getting the vibe that, that maybe there was more expectation on me um, at the nationals uh, to do a result. And I didn't. Um so I was a little bit sort of nervous going over to join up with the team in Greece. But were you training European? We no, I, I moved over to from from my coach um, 
Ian Melvin, the guy who helps me get to France. Yeah. Who coached me all through France. Also pretty much got me onto SEG. Got in contact with them to get me onto that team. Um, I had changed coaches to a SEG coach, a guy named Vassi. I won't try pronouncing his last name. It was very <laughs> Greek. Um, and he was very... Hey, Greek squad. No, they're Dutch, but they have a Greek uh, performance director. Yeah, right. And he was very, very scientific. Yeah, right. And structured. And that was very hard to adapt to. And that started in November. So you're going back to what you had. I'm going back to what I had, thinking that I was pursuing... Now, wasn't a fan of... Mm. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of it at all. I mean, I was like going out doing these tempo rides and... 2040s and all this stuff I'd done before, but I was like, ah, I don't need to do this. Like, mm. and you know, I got to nationals and I wasn't going that well. And I was like, yeah, this training's crap. It doesn't work. Uh, it wasn't the case, but um, you know, I was I was still very French at this point. And where your team, your teammates, it was a global team. Like, it wasn't very international. Um, I don't know the stats, but there there were quite a few Dutchies. Um, and then there was uh, myself and Freddie from Oz. There was an American at the start um, and Belgian. Um, yeah, it was, it was international. Um, but the, the language of the team was English and it was very um, drilled into us that that was the language of the team. Everything, any communication, team meeting, emails, uh, speaking in the, in the sort of in the camp, camper, English. Do you fit in? As far as I know, yep. Did you like it though? Um, I didn't have the same feeling as I did when I was on the French amateur team. I loved um, the opportunity uh, that we had at SEG. The setup was excellent. Um, really an amazing race program for any guy trying to make it pro. It's exactly what I needed. Everyone on the team, all the guys were super guys. Um, and all the staff were great. So I can't say anything negative about the team, but my uh, overall feeling in the team was that I wasn't as at home as I was in France. Um, and and I guess uh, I also realised to an extent that that's how it has to be. It's, it's high-performance sport. You can't feel like you're just going for a six-hour drive with a picnic stop on the way <laughs> um, to a race, you know? Like, it's mm. it's got to be at some point a little bit of a transition to, to like a job um, rather than just having fun with uh, with friends. And, and that was the transition uh, to that next phase, I guess. Kajharal. Mm. Is that how I pronounce it? Kajharal. Kajharal. But, I mean, don't Kaharal. hold me to that. Kajharal. Yeah, Kajharal. We'll um, a pro-continental squad. Mm-hmm. When did that come on the cards? Um, pretty early. Uh Last year under 23 now? I was a last year under 23 at SEG. Um, Were you so feeling the, pressure? A lot of pressure. Self, self, yeah. um, like just self-mounting pressure that this is the year. It's the year that everyone speak of. It's like, it's the year you don't want to be in. The fourth it's year of under 23. It? it is. It's, it's the make or break to some extent. Um, There's this weird like hurdle that once you turn mm. out of the under 23, so it's all over. Yeah, that's, that's the perception. Mm. For everyone, it's not the case, but for most, it is. Yeah. So I was very nervous um, f- for every race. Um, 
and and things did not start well in my first race at Seg. I went to Tour of Normandy and got pretty smashed. Not you know, not outrageously, but I thought I was in the form of my life and I rocked up and there's these big dogs from Joker, a Norwegian team that dominate. And just had the strongest men in the world. Mm, this is it. And and it was it was raining and cold, which which wasn't abnormal to anything I'd experienced, but it it sort of just had this uh, it just uh, enhanced this worry and, and nerve that I had that like, oh, this racing is harder than all these races I thought were harder than anything on the planet and I've got to step up if I'm going to make it. Um, and uh, it was a good challenge um, which uh, resulted in, in a stage win in Tour de Bretagne which was like a race that I'd always really wanted to go well in after having done it the year before with you, I think. Super hard race. Very hard race. Just, but a brilliant race. Character building. Yeah, character building. That's a good way to describe it. I, I don't know if you remember, but that 2015 Tour de Bretagne, I got a really late call up from James. Something had happened in, in the squad that you guys are in. Someone got sick. There'd been a few crashes maybe in, in some Nations Cups. And, and I'd kind of started that that year in France like with this uh, thought that I'd get more call-ups, but then I was like, oh, I'm not getting any. Mm. And and I was actually on holiday in like already because I'd been in Europe for like four months. Um, I was in a, a little uh, campground hut with a few teammates uh, near Nice um, just having a great time for a few days and James called me and asked me if I wanted to do Tour de Bretagne. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, because this was my opportunity to sort of break into the team. Um, so I did some panic training and then came and joined you guys. <laughs> um, and it was hard. It was raining every day almost that year. and It rains every day every year, it seems like. Mm, I think we only... I think you and I were maybe the... Did you finish? There was only very few of us that yeah, finished. I, I think it, I did finish. I think it was just you and I. I was more of a participation rider by the end of the mm. end of the eight days. I think it it's is. It's a long tour, something like that. A very hard tour. Uh, long stages, bad weather, good competition. Um, but after that 2015 edition with the national team, I was like, oh, I love this race for some reason or other. I just love that race. Um, so the year after with Seg, I went back and after having sort of been hammered more or less in Tour de Normandy, which is which is like a, a, a very similar style of race a few weeks before it. Um, I won the last stage in Bretagne and that was a big breakthrough. Um, in an under-23 sense and a development sense, that is a very prestigious race. Um, and that started to create a bit of chatter um, for that goal of being a professional um and that's more or less when kaha came about soon after that were there other options at the time no not with uh not with world tour teams there was a bit of talk with uh, aqua blue mm-hmm. um so that was a good option it turned it out turned out not to take um and maybe the odd other french team there was some interest from the the Breton team or fort uh actually i don't even know what it's called now arkea Mm-hmm. Fortuneo at the time it was called, um, but Kaha were seemed seemed quite interested and and it seemed like a good pathway uh, for a rider like myself. Um, I didn't put pen to paper straight away, but 
it was certainly um, a, like a, a very attractive option at the time. But not the easy option. Aqua Blue is the easy option at the time. Well, Aqua Blue was a team that didn't exist yet. Mm. So I thought it wasn't going to be an easy option. I thought there, there might be some teething problems with the team um, purely because it was new. So to me, Kaha wasn't the easy option. I also had this naive perception that because it was pro, there'd be a lot more English speaking going on. I was wrong. <laughs> um, so it didn't appear to be a, a difficult option. And also having done the French thing, I was like, ah, man, I speak French. I'll be able to pick up Spanish in a month and I'll be all comfortable and relaxed in, in Girona on a Spanish team within two months of being on the team. Can you just explain that team? Because a lot of people in Australia wouldn't even know it's a thing. So it's a pro-continental team. You might have to get Tom to do an episode. Yeah, on actually, it. you could do his continental breakfast um, with a guest interview with Schultz. Yeah, lovely. Um, it's uh, at the time when I joined, it was the only Spanish pro-continental team. Uh, there now are three, I think. Um, and in Spain and and probably the European peloton, it's it's a quite a well reputed pro-continental team. Uh, they're typically renowned for being in every breakaway they can, um, just being uh, protagonists and, and aggressive and, and a stepping stone. Some big names had ridden for, ridden for them. Um, Michal Kwiatkowski, uh, Hugh Carthy was on the team uh, the year before I joined, um, David De La Cruz and many other guys. So th- they were a team... They were a professional team, but still with a view to trying to move guys on to the world tour. Uh, so it was attractive in that sense because I still had this this ultimate goal to join the world tour. Um, and even once I'd signed with Kaha, while being at SEG, there was still an option to join the world tour um, for the year and maybe not ride for Kaha. It was an option of your contract. Yeah, so that was the other reason I signed with Kaha. I think I signed with them in June. That's, that's um, nice, June. That's yeah, that's job security its best. Yeah, it was it was great, and and I I wasn't I was just happy to have a contract. I signed for minimum wage, um, and and just content to know that I was was going to be a pro. Um, but at the time of signing the contract, um, Orica Greenage at the time had offered me a stagiaire. Um, and it was, it was more or less a stagiaire for experience rather than with a view to uh, getting a spot at the end. Um, in saying that, Seg, um, the team and the agency were kind of like, look, if you really perform during your stagiaire, even though they have said that they don't have a spot for you in 2017, uh, you know, you might be able to convince them if you do a really good ride. So they worked out a clause with Kaha that if Green Edge offered me a contract, only Green Edge, no other World Tour team, uh, but if they offered me a contract throughout my stagiaire period that I could take it and that Kaha would let me do so. Um, during that period, I won a stage in Lavenir and I really thought... The biggest under-23 race in the world. Es- essentially. Uh, Bretagne, to me, is bigger, but... but- there's this 
there's an added hype around. Lavenir is, is essentially the under-23 tour, Yeah, let's say. A lot of hype. Um, and, and traditionally, if you win a stage there or you perform well there in the overall... You, you go, go into the world you tour. You go into the world tour. Correct. So I won a stage there um, and I thought... Who, oh, who won Lavenir that year? David Gordu. Yeah. Uh, I think... I think David Gordo won it. Um, and I thought, you beauty. Green Edge have to offer me yeah. a contract now. I've won a stage in Bretagne and Lavenir. This is it. I'm set. Kaha can bloody... Yeah. Just, I don't care about that anymore. I'm going to Green Edge. And, and there was initially after the race, like a lot of positive uh, sort of talk from Seg. Like, oh, surely. Here like, we go. But... They, they have to take you. Um, but it turned out they were true to their word and, and there wasn't a spot for me on the team uh, for 2017 um, or for, forever, actually. Uh, I thought that was it with Green Edge. Um, Why? I just assu- I'd assumed that uh, maybe I just wasn't that good in their eyes and, like, you know, I've stagiered. It's like, well... He stagiered, he had his chance. Uh, see you later. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, so that meant I was going so to Kaha. You, so your first contact with Kaha, how was, what was that like? I had zero contact with Kaha throughout the contract process. It was all done through SEG. Um, and so my first contact was actually after the season, I stayed in, in Girona. Um, for a month or so, I decided that I wanted to set up an apartment uh, because I had been in the SEG apartment. Um, I just wanted to be set up for when I came back as a pro. I didn't want to be in January and February like, oh, man, I need to sort out where I'm going to live. Um, so I decided um, with a, a good mate of mine, Hamish Schroes, that um, I'd stay over, I'd find us a place and we'd share an apartment for 2017. Um so I met them in that period, like in November, the, the director who spoke no English and actually the press officer drove from Pamplona to Girona, like five and a half hours with my bike and had a coffee and a quick chat with the guy who could speak English and then they left. Uh, that was my first that, contact with that them. That was it? That was it. No discussion of so, race program. So a very traditional European Spanish speaking team. Yeah. Again, there was a, like a bit of worry there. I'm like, oh man, the director like doesn't even speak English. What am I gonna do? Because I, like old, I said, old school. I, yeah, I, I'd assumed pro team. You know, they're gonna speak. They're gonna speak English for sure. I mean, even French DSs speak English in the in the pros. But uh, yeah, so that was setting the tone for what was to come the year after. And the year after, same deal. European Aussie summer and then into a early departure? Yeah. Um, the best thing about having signed with Kaha was that I could finally really have a good offie because they had no interest whatsoever in the nationals, <laughs> so I wasn't even going to go. <laughs> I was just like, you beauty. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed... November, December, 
I, I got back into training, you know, after a month or three weeks or a month off, but just did everything I wanted to do. I was not concerned about performing in January and, man, I'm happy about that. Like, it was awesome not doing nationals. I came over to Europe on the 2nd of January because I'd, in the apartment we're in now, I'd arranged this place. Um, so I was pretty excited to get to get back over here um, and sort of start um, what I thought was going to be my life for hopefully the foreseeable future. So I was with a lot of motivation. And the team itself was what you expected once race, racing kicked off? Um, yes and no. Uh, they were still very much that uh, protagonist team, uh, but they were also quite old school as well. And having gone from the old school French style back to the scientific segue to then going back to the old school way, like no team trainer. So I went back to working with Ian Melvin <laughs> and sort of training kind of like in between the two now. Uh, at this point um, but there was a big bump in the road uh, in that first few months when uh, no in the first few weeks actually um, when I found when I found out that the the team's uh, way of applying for my working residence in Spain wasn't done correctly um, so halfway through the team training camp I had to fly back to Australia Nightmare. Big nightmare. They felt pretty guilty though. They put me on a business class Emirates flight. Yeah. Um, Were you fuming? Oh, mate. <laughs> if you don't think I'm an angry person, you should have seen it then. <laughs> How long did you have to go back for? Well, it was an unknown and, period and, of time. And do like rubbish admin, like horror, the worst kind of admin you can possibly the think of. worst. So... Backstory, obviously I'd been through all this in France, doing it myself, horrible thing to have to do, visas and stuff. And I questioned the team of Kaha if there was anything I needed to do 100% in Australia, like it just seemed way too easy. Mm. And they're like, no, no, this is it. This is how it's going to go. In their defense, it's it's very complicated. So I, I understand that they, they made a mistake. But having questioned them about... Uh, the way they were doing it and, and getting in a short answer to then finding out I had to go back to Oz to do some admin back there. I was pretty, pretty angry mm. to the extent I didn't travel back to Oz with a bike. Um, I didn't know how long I was going to be in Oz. Uh, so I just asked the bike shop I used to work for if I could borrow a bike at some point while I was there. Um, but I wasn't fussed about training and I was just like, this is what it is. So I'm going to sort out this admin and ride when I can. Um, and then get back over to Europe. And I missed some races in the process of that, like all the... How, how long was it in the end? I was back there for maybe two weeks, maybe longer. I, the last part of it, I had to go to Sydney, and I just didn't take a bike. Just went to Sydney for like a week. Um, maybe it was a bit less than a week. I, I can't remember um, exactly. Uh, but the team just booked me an apartment in the CBD, Sydney. Mm because I didn't have my own bike, I couldn't take a bike there because I was like, oh, I'm probably going to fly from Sydney to Europe after I get my card from the, the consulate. So I just lived the dream in Sydney for... So you were just waiting for that days. card and as soon as you got that card next day on the flight. When I got to Sydney, I had to go do an interview that was fast-tracked by the team somehow, which you cannot do. I have spoken to a lot of people trying to do Spanish visas and it's a big wait and somehow I was in for an interview 
within a big, my... A big positive, I imagine, of being on a Spanish squad. Yeah, I think mainly, yeah, definitely being on the Spanish squad. I was actually going to be employed by a Spanish company to do a, a you know, a, I guess what they consider some type of talent mm. um, in Spain. Which is different to most teams where you're traditionally a contractor, correct? Yeah, self-employed yeah. and from a foreign country normally yeah. if you're living in Spain. Um, so I went for the interview and then they just said, look, you know, you might have to wait a week or a month. And I'm like, oh, no, it is like what everyone said. And then like four days later, I got a call from the consulate, my card or whatever, the piece of paper was already done. Got this call on whatever day it was in the morning, went in, got my piece, piece of paper. And I was like, right. When they get back to Europe, got on the next flight out of Sydney the same day, um, quickly learnt um, how difficult it is to change your whereabouts under the pump with uh, anti-doping because that was also new being a pro. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was on the next flight back to Barcelona. Was that the best call you got all year? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The happiest Massive man in relief. The world. I, was, yeah. I was stoked and I was... Oh, it was, it was a really stressful time, especially because I knew I was kind of not training as I should. Um, it had been a lot of travel in a short space of time and I was just going backwards in on form-wise. And also, like, if that was a month, that's a big period of time. Like, But you've only got a two-year, two-year contract? Yeah, I, I was stressing for sure. I was like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd planned to be going quite well. I was making up a lot of ground in, in on the training camp. I was doing extras. Um, out training and I was feeling really good and really excited to start racing. I think it was in Mallorca. I was going to do the Mallorca Challenge um, and I'd never been to Mallorca and still haven't and that was going to be my chance to go to Mallorca. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big sort of a big stress. Um, again, with that, it's not contract year, but I'm just getting into it. I want to sort of show that I deserve a spot and, and earn an Another one. Hmm. How'd that year end up going? Yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't too bad. Um, it ended with doing the Vuelta, which I would never have got to do on any other team, I don't think. Um, so I think uh, earning a spot in that uh, Vuelta squad um, pretty much sums up how the year went. Like it wasn't, I didn't do anything special, but I obviously ticked the boxes I needed to tick um, to the point that they chose to have a foreigner in the team at the the biggest race they can do and that there was still that professional drive that this is like my step before the world tour like there's still another hurdle after this definitely um i was very driven to to make that next step um but i was also realistic i'd kind of thought "Mm, maybe i don't have a spot in the world tour just yet Mm. it's the goal um but i was kind of thinking like oh if i could re-sign with kaha that'd be a good situation Uh, because i was also you know, like it, it was a professional team. You could, you could do fifteen years at Caja and you'd you'd have been a pro for fifteen years and done great races. But I, I just wanted to reach the top at some point, uh, or the top tier, and uh, to see what that was like. Because I could also see in races like the Vuelta, when you rock up to the hotel and and teams have chefs and and really good equipment and just that bigger bu- the thing that the things that a bigger budget allows a team to have. I thought, wow, that would make this race a lot easier. Hmm. Um, you must have done something right to be on a Spanish squad for their biggest race of the year to get a start in the Welter. 
I must have, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> I just got I just got the call up. Um, not not the call up actually. They, I uh, I got really sick in in June, um, so I was I had to miss the route to Sud, which mm. was to me that was like oh I have to go really well on the route to Sud if I'm going to make the Vuelta, and that was kind of the the general. Um, consensus on the team that you've you've got to really perform there because that's kind of the last race before they're going to put together the squad even though there's Burgos or San Sebastian um, directly before the Vuelta they're more or less going to have the squad selected and I was stressing to the 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 team press officer because I couldn't speak Spanish at this point he was the only guy who spoke English um, I was sort of stressing to him that I I, I wanted to go to Route Sud even if I was sick, but then I didn't want to perform badly because I was sick. And he's like, I'll call you back. Like once I've spoken to the directors and he called me back and he's like, okay, Nick, um, look, don't stress. You're not going to go to route to Sud, but prepare like you're doing the Vuelta because you're probably going to do the Vuelta. So this was in like start of June. I'm like, whoa, I've already been told I'm doing the Vuelta. I've done like four races with the team. Um, and in my mind, I hadn't performed incredibly well with the team so uh, I don't know maybe they saw me as a good good workhorse for the team or or something I'm not sure and then when did so they finished off on a high obviously with the Welter the mm. next year when when did that World Tour dream come about when when did that start to go click that oh this is potentially an opportunity and did you think you were ready um, so in my first year I did Catalonia was my first World Tour race Missed the time cut on the second last day, um, got eliminated, and I was. That's when I was like, oh, I don't belong in the world too. You know, I'm just useless. Um, but Catalonia that next year, um, I went to I went to Tour of Oman after my first race in Europe, and I wasn't going that well. But I knew where I was at. I hadn't done nationals again. I'd had a good offie. Um, I had a lot of work to do, but I didn't want to come out flying. So I went to Oman, and I was I was. Just, struggling so I was like I need to get in the breakaway as much as I can to just get a big workload because I don't have any races between this and Catalonia which was like a month or so so I got in two or three breaks there um and then came back and just got well actually I was locked out of my apartment because the key got stuck in the door (laughs) so I had to stay in that hotel just across there um for a night but after that I just worked really hard to try and um, sort of see where I was at in Catalonia versus the year before to see if I'd made any any gains. And I had, and I was I was going well in Catalonia. I don't have anything to show for it because obviously if you have something to show for form in Catalonia, you're probably one of yeah. the best bike riders in the world. Big rider. Um, uh, but I was really content with how I was racing there. I was in the race. I was active. I was in the breakaway on the last stage in, in on a hard circuit in Barcelona. Um, and I came out of that like, okay, maybe I could potentially be getting noticed now um, by other teams and I want to really continue this this run of form. And uh, it was like the week after that that I got third in Grand Prix Indurain, um, which was won by Valverde. So that was, that was a big breaking point there. That huge on a Spanish team? Massive. That race is also... Um, around Pamplona, which is where Cajaral's based. Uh, it's also where Movistar are based. So Movistar and Caja, even though it's not a World Tour race, it is a big race. And I'm not blowing this out of proportion when I say Movistar take this race seriously. It's, they have to win because it's their race. 
and Kaha have to win because it's their race. Um, and it gets a lot of big teams because it's a few days before the Tour of the Basque Country. Uh, so there's a lot of teams that make the journey over, race in Drain, have one or two days off and then start Basque. Uh, so it's, it's notoriously a, one of the biggest one-day races in Spain aside from uh, the World Tour Classic of San Sebastian. So it was a, it was a big deal for the team they were really pleased and they offered me a renewal uh a renewal of my contract like that week yeah wow yeah so that was real early in the year and as what well. were you thinking um i was like very did humbled have, did you have any whispers from world tour teams at not point? at all um uh like i said i just had thoughts that potentially i was getting noticed from good ride a good ride at catalonia but i knew i was going to have to back that up and and actually get a result at the end of the day you can be a strong rider and do a good performance but if you have nothing to show for it no one's going to sign you um so getting that result i was like this this is good and what made it better was that valverde won the race if uh someone else had won that race it it maybe wouldn't have looked as good Mm. um so it's also a bit of luck on my side there that valverde was present he won the race and i was on the podium um so that was a, a lucky moment in my career um, that helped open doors. Um, and it did start to develop a bit of interest from World Tour teams. Um, uh, but not Green Edge um, at that point. And uh, I was pretty prepared to re-sign with Kaha. Um, but I asked them if I could... Um, essentially similar deal to 2016 uh, that like I I don't want to sign the contract because I have aspirations of becoming world tour. Are you prepared to like hold the terms of the contract and see where I go from here? And they were very good about it and said, yep. Um, I also assured them that I would not sign for another pro continental team, that if I were to change teams, I was changing to a bigger and better team. Uh, So I was, pretty lucky in that that's sense that's an unreal deal that's perfect Brilliant. it was ideal because i knew no matter what kaha were going to take me again on better terms i was comfortable in the team at this point i was starting to speak spanish um and feeling at home in the team again because it's a smaller team not as uh not as big budget it's it's got more of a family-like atmosphere and and there's a lot of great people in it uh so i was pretty content to stay but i had that aspiration on the sporting side to be in the world tour so from that point to signing with Mitchelton Scott, if it wasn't even on the cards then, mm. how did that come about? That's something you'd have to ask them, I think. Uh, I don't really know because between that point and when Matt White got in contact with me, I didn't do anything of note in particular that I can think of. Um, I'd, I had some good, consistent rides, some top tens, um, but nothing, no podiums. Um, and I was I was on my mid-season break, I think. So it wasn't directly after anything. Um, it was just a WhatsApp message from Whitey asking me what I was up to in in 2019. Did you get the shivers? Did you get the eyes light up? Um, well, I'd just been in the Isle of Man, um, and I'd flown back, and and I had I woke up pretty late. And there was just literally just a WhatsApp message from Whitey, like, hey, mate, how are you? 
So I didn't know what and, to And say. I assume you don't talk to Whitey on a... No, I'd never spoken to him. I'd actually had no WhatsApp messages from him ever. I, When I started at the team, I didn't speak to him really until the very end. He called me to tell me that they weren't going to sign me, but not to discount anything in the future. But I sort of just thought, oh, that's, they're just saying what they that's need to say. That's just what they say. Exactly. Um, so I was like, oh, man, I like screenshotted it and sent it to my missus. <laughs> I was like, what do you reckon this means? Like... Just didn't. I didn't know what to make of it. I, I, of course, in my mind, I was like, "Oh, I hope this means what I think it means." And I just replied, and yeah, like, "I'm good, thanks. How are you?" Type thing. And it eventually, after a few few sort of messages, he just asked if I had re-signed with Kaha, and that's when I knew that he was going to be potentially talking about a contract. Do you have an agent at the time? Yeah, still was seg. Okay. Yeah, but I guess Whitey had my contact details. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciated that he made the effort to contact me directly. Oh, it's great having an agent and it's kind of um, a necessity, I guess, in the peloton. Um, but that personal touch was was uh, really good. But it also meant there was uh, a little bit of an unknown because he never said to me directly, I want you on the team. He just said... You know, have you re-signed when I told him I hadn't but had an offer? He said, okay, great. I can't promise you anything, but you'll hear from me again soon. So then there was like this two-week period where I just heard nothing. Oh, he, he asked me if I was still with SEG as an agency and I confirmed. I'm hearing nothing from him or SEG for like two weeks. I'm like, man. Were you ringing up your agent every day? No, I didn't. I didn't tell my agent that I'd had contact with them, I don't think. Um, because I also, I knew my position at the time, like very small fish. I didn't want to bother my agency with a potentially a message that didn't mean anything, you know. I was They have big riders. This is two weeks before the Tour de France, peak time for any agent. I didn't want to call my agent and be like, hey guys, <laughs> I got a message from Matt White, like... They're going to give me a ride because I didn't know that's what it meant. Um, so I just did what I thought was the right thing to do and and uh, give him uh, confirmation that I was with the agency so that he could talk about it with them. Um, and I guess from kind of a... Because I was nervous and didn't know the process, I, I didn't want to bother uh, the agents in a way um, and it- just waited to hear from them. And then from there to signing your first contract, mm-hmm. was there other teams? Second. Second contract. Your first world tour contract. First world tour contract. Um, it's all right. Lucas we, Hamilton calls me a Neo Pro. <laughs> <laughs> was there other teams that you were evaluating or was it this, that's what I want. I don't want anything else. There had been interest from a few world tour teams at this point, um, but nothing on the table. Hmm. Um, and this is where obviously having Seg... Um, Whitey had obviously gone to them and, and I guess said uh, a pretty similar thing to what he said to me. Uh, and that's probably why I didn't hear anything in this two weeks because from that conversation, they obviously had Seg had done all the work. And, and when I heard from Seg, it was uh, Green Edge have offered you a yeah, contract. You've got a piece of paper with your name yeah, on it. Yeah. So that was, um, that was like the best phone call um, I have had in recent times for sure. Um, Were you bouncing off the walls? 
Yeah, but I was at a race, uh, so I didn't really know how to show my emotion. Yeah. Obviously, didn't want to walk down to breakfast like, oh, yeah, yeah I got- see you later, guys. I'm going to Mitchelton. <laughs> um, so I was pretty reserved in my reaction, but mm. just really, like, relieved in a way, um, pumped and just humbled that, like, it had come about, really. And how's it been? Can't fault it. It's been amazing. Um Better than I expected for sure, actually. Um, I've spoken about atmosphere a lot in this potty and I don't have any other experience with any World Tour team, but I think I could confidently say that there is not another team with an atmosphere like ours. Um, And that's coming from a guy who's been on the team for a few months or half a year. Um, It's just so easy to fit in. Uh, It's a very welcoming culture um, and it's, it's very familiar being being that Australian culture and uh, any kind of doubt or fear that I had in regards to that was uh, was quickly out of my mind. It's just, uh, it's it's amazing. And you're performing well in it. Talking when you were talking about not wanting to go to the AIS because of that, mm. is it working for you now? Oh yeah, it's, it's. I think it's. I think it's really getting a lot out of me, um, because the guys that we ride for in this team, the big hitters, the leaders, um, they're the reason we have this culture in a way. You know, it comes from the top with Jerry. Uh, once you meet Jerry Ryan, he's a, just a genuine down-to-earth guy and that kind of filters through all the staff to the big hitters on the team to then the smaller riders on the team like myself. And when you've got a leader who you genuinely like as a guy um, – who is genuinely genuinely appreciative of the work you do, I think you can go a lot deeper. Um, so for sure that's getting, you know, an extra 10% um, from me than, than I would working for someone I don't rate. And looking back on what you've done, at the moment there's no JKAS. The pathway is what you did. Mm. What, would you tell, what would you tell a 17-year-old? I think... Uh, if you're gonna, if if you want to be a pro in Europe, uh, at some point or another, you're gonna have to go to Europe, whether that's when you turn pro or before. Um, one way or another, you can always make it work. But I think having that exposure before you turn pro is probably going to be in your favour more so than if you turn pro into Europe mm. uh, rather than from Europe. Um, I think you've just got to go for it, really. Um, be prepared to be knocked down a lot, to not be happy. Um, for most negatives you can think of, um, but it is what you make of it. And in the end, if you uh, if you push through the, the tough times, there is often a reward. Is there... Any moments looking back, reflecting on your career so far, that was like, oh, that that really defined who I am today. What I what I experienced then. Um, just that whole three years in France. It is the most defining moment of me, like as a bike rider, but more so as a human being. Everything I do. Today is um, is a reflection probably on that three years in France. I 
I didn't move out of home in Oz. I moved out of home in France, essentially. Um, I learned how to do all the things you learn um, in relation to independence in France. Um, it, yeah, it, it taught me how to be an adult in a way. Obviously not taking away from any parenting my parents did. <laughs> if they somehow stumble across this potty. Um, but... Um, yeah, that's actually one thing to mention as well. I think if you're going to do it, the the European pathway on your own accord, be confident in the support you've got. Like you have to have people that believe in you and my family and friends did. Um, but if you're, if, if you're a bit hesitant and you don't think you have that support, then maybe holding off a little bit to turning pro to Europe rather than from Europe is, is a more attractive approach. And what's the goal now? If you said, like, where do you think you can get to? Um, I think that's still a little bit up for discovery. Um, I would just like to have a, a long career um, being sort of in a good, good place. Like, uh, not, like being able to live a happy life while being a, while being a pro for as long as I can. At this point, the moment I don't like it, I can assure you I'll stop um, because I did the tough times of not liking it in a tough environment. Um, but uh, I can't see myself not not liking it anytime soon. It's a, it's a good situation to be in. It's a good lifestyle being a bike rider. Um, it's hard work, but... But, but it, with the asterisk that this is not Schultzy, but he's going to be arrogant for one minute, what are you going to do? Are you going to win the Tour de France, are you going to win one big one one day race, are you going to be the best domestic in the world? Like what, what, what's the goal at the moment? Um, Long term. I, I, I want to be, uh, like realistically speaking, I want to be one of the best domestiques in the peloton for a GC rider. And if that means along the way I can win the odd race from a breakaway, um, that would be, I think, more or less my limits. <laughs> Come on, Chilty. He can be a lot better. He can, he can win some very big bike races, as you will hopefully see over the next couple of years. Congratulations, Chilty, on fulfilling that dream and having an absolute doozy of a story at such a young age. Um, it's fantastic to see, and all the best for the rest of the year. Thanks very much, mate. It's been a pleasure to share it.